who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. All righty, Madigan. Here we are. Second we are. week of Women's History Month talking about a man. I was just going to say we're going to talk about a dude during Women's History <laughs> Month. But I have to say, and I was thinking about this because I was like, this does seem odd that we're talking about a man for Women's History Month. But I have to say, we have to give credit where credit is due because this man was intersectional before that was a word, before it was a thing. You know, obviously, nobody is a perfect person, but he was, I think, a, a a man that knew how to use his privilege in a really great way during the 1800s when a lot of other white dudes didn't know how to do that. A lot of other white people, as, you know, displayed in our last episode, yeah. as highlighted in, in our last episode with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I mean, like... I'm absolutely certain he was not a flawless human being. And I'm sure that he made mistakes. I'm sure that he did things that he shouldn't have done. However, I read quite a few articles. I was going to say I didn't find much. And I really didn't find very much. Like he seemed he seems to be like one of those very rare human beings who knew from a pretty young age, like these are my convictions and stood by those convictions. And the few things that I feel like he got wrong once he recognized that like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. He backed out and, backed would, and would speak on it and apologize. Right. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like he would just pretend that he didn't do something. He would actually like make a point of vocalizing that, which I think is yes. so admirable. Yeah, vocalizing it and then spending the rest of his life advocating against it, which exactly. is like kind yeah. of the most amazing. I would, I actually thought when doing this, I'm glad we didn't do this um, because I think it would have made for a long episode, but it could have been very interesting to do a Garrison Brown episode to talk yes. about William Lloyd Garrison and, and John, John Brown. Brown because they are opposites of the same cause. Like they, they are, are 
and violently I, different. <laughs> I loved, I've been really interested in John Brown lately because when I brought up doing Garrison to Max, he knows a lot about John Brown. So he started talking to me about that. So I was kind of doing some reading about him as well. And then we did have a listener uh, right on our Facebook in the group page saying that John Brown was one of the people that she would love for us to cover. He's It'd be fascinating. Cool. He is so fascinating. And I absolutely do think that we will do an episode on him later on. Because unlike William Lloyd Garrison, who, again, when you read a lot of what's written about him, it is overwhelmingly positive. Like history has, you know, kind of looked at William Lloyd Garrison and said, this was a man that we can hold up oh, as yeah. an ideal. And John Brown is a little bit more controversial. Yeah. Um, Because of the way he went about it. It's almost kind of like, you know, white, white 19th century versions of like the MLK Malcolm X debate where like one of them is like, hey, we got to go about this in a really nonviolent fashion. And the other one is like, fuck that, set it on fire. You know, and it's not to say that either is right or wrong. It's just to say they had very different methods. They did. <laughs> about how yeah. to get this accomplished, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about the man, William Lloyd Garrison. I've got to say, I don't like when somebody has three names because it's hard for me to say. It's a like, lot. William Lloyd Garrison is a lot for my mouth it's a lot. for some reason. I don't know why. So I started I'm- in my notes just writing... WLG because I was just like I don't want to write it out. Oh, I just call him Garrison all the way through, which I think would be an awesome first name. It's almost Harrison, like George Ooh, Harrison, one I of my like favorite that. Beatles. I do. But it's Garrison. So I just refer to him as Garrison throughout all of it's this. It's like George Harrison in one. Garrison. <gasps> oh my God. Did we, we just love come up to with my it. boy name? I no. hope so. Okay. No, I'm not naming a boy. <laughs> Fine, Gar- never mind. I'd have to call him Gary. I'm not calling a boy Gary. Fuck that. That would no. be his only nickname for Garrison. All of our Gary listeners are super mad. <laughs> I would think of um, the snail or my really, really uh, grouchy uncle. Yeah, I will say the only Gary that I ever knew IRL was kind of a weird dude. But that's not to say, you know, hashtag not all Garys. We're not coming for you. <laughs> Every every Gary, there's like a thousand Gary listeners that we don't know about that listen. We have like a whole Gary following. And we lost them all. All of them (laughs) just turned this off. Oh, Mm -hmm. Jesus. All right, let's get back on track. Let's talk about the man, the legend, William Lloyd Garrison. He was born on December 10th, 1805 in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and his family kind of had a fun way of getting over to the U.S. His parents were from the British colony of New Brunswick, which is now present-day Canada. His father was a merchant sailor and had obtained papers for his family to move to America under something called the Act of the Relief of the Sick and Disabled Seamen. And I can't say seamen without smiling as someone who was in navy rotc and had to say that word quite often as a teenager (laughs) i understand thank you i feel seen um so his parents arrived in newburyport when he was just over one year oh yeah i was like wait he wouldn't have been born yet but he was born his parents arrived in newburyport when he was a year old so that's interesting but i thought he was born in newburyport that's what yeah I think I got this from two different articles and they must have like gotten a date wrong or something. This is a good place to put to put that disclaimer. Also, (laughs) listen, 
I read a bunch of articles, and while generally the overview of the information was the same, the anytime, anytime you go back this far in dealing with people, um, there are going to be discrepancies between their stories. Like, that happens all the time. But for the most part, what I saw was that he was born in Newburyport, Massachusetts. So, his, so I think his we can assume... probably just got there. We can assume that his parents had immigrated just right before he was born, I would assume. Unfortunately, his father struggled to find work and eventually abandoned the family in 1808 when Garrison was only three years old, which left Garrison's mother, Frances, who is described as a tall, charming, and religious woman, to raise him alone. And they they were in poverty. They were very, very poor. Garrison began working at a really young age by selling candy and lemonade, delivering wood supply. Um, at one point, his mother actually had to leave home for an extended period of time to try to find work. And he lived with a Baptist deacon for the time. And that was where he received a lot of education from this Baptist yeah, deacon. And I do want to say that although his mother was absent for long periods of his childhood, in a lot of the things that he talks about when he talks about his mother, they're favorable. Like, I think she tried to be a good mom when she was around. She yeah. just was in a very, very difficult spot where she had to leave in order to provide for her children. But yeah. when she was, or her child, but when she was around, um, she did instill an upright character. She really worked hard to try and um, make sure that William had good moral fiber. Definitely. Her religion was very important to her, and she passed that along to him as well. Yeah. They did reunite from what I read in 1814 when Garrison took a job for a brief time as a shoemaker. He also took a hand at cabinet making, but he found that physical tasks like this were just not really his thing. He was more of an intellectual, you know? Yes. And you know what? That comes across in his pictures. I'm like, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, you're not a... You're not a school kid. Yeah. <laughs> but in 1818, at the age of 13, he began working as an apprentice at the Newbury Herald. So but this we got to talk of... about what he did as an apprentice because he was a compositor. And that is like a job that I would love to have. Do you know what a compositor is? Not really. Okay. Have you seen the Newsies? Yes. You know when they're placing all the individual little tiles into the machine before they do the big chunk chunk oh, press? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So he would be the person to help like I put see. the letters in and do the chunk chunk. And that, Fun. like, I loved the Newsies growing up and I loved that scene where they were actually making all the newspapers. So when I read that, I was like, oh my God, he was a Newsie. What so a good cute. time. I know. I know. And at 13, <laughs> you're like, yeah, he was for sure a Newsie, like an early 19th century Newsie. Yeah. I'm I'm picturing him in the little cap singing down the street. I mean, it's almost a hundred a hundred years prior, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever, Basically. whatever. Let's not think about it. Oh yeah, that's right. This is the beginning of the 1800s. Whatever. Um, yeah. So I just thought that was really cool that that when he was an apprentice, it was him actually working like the machines and the little letters and everything like that. And I think so. We watched, uh, you watched more of it than I did, but a PBS docuseries that I told you about. And you do see him doing that a little bit in the docuseries where he's placing the letters in the mm-hmm. machine and stuff because he was very hands-on throughout his entire career as being a writer and an editor. I don't, I can't imagine him, you know, especially with his own pieces. I'm sure he did still did a lot of that like manual work himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I do want to tell our listeners, so... 
If you've never seen, and I've talked about it on this podcast before because they've covered a multitude of topics over the last, I think, like 20 years, honestly, but PBS's series, American Experience, Mm. is so good. I watched when we did the episode on the 1916 influenza pandemic um, or epidemic. You said 1916. Okay, whatever. (laughs) But whenever we did, when we did that one, I watched the American Experience uh, episode on that. And they have one where the first three episodes, I'm sure there are more because I watched all three of them and it ended in kind of a weird way. Um, But the first three episodes of their series called The Abolitionists is on YouTube. If you don't have like the PBS app or, or whatever, you can watch those on YouTube and they are very good. Now, I know that Madigan probably would like to give us a disclaimer on yes. <laughs> on those episodes. Yeah, I started watching it and within the first like minute I recorded part of it and sent it to Keegan and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. You have to watch it. And then like literally after I sent that there is a a very long horrible drawn out scene where young Frederick Douglass witnesses, I believe his aunt being very, very badly whipped by their master. And it's it's not it's it's not a fun thing to watch. It's, I turned it down very, and looked away. It's intense. Yes, but but the show itself is so well done. Like oh honestly, my gosh. they had a budget for it because the I'm reenactment like, actors are like yes. actual actors. Mm-hmm. Like they're good. Like it's crazy, and they the look guy like the plays, people. I was gonna say the guy who plays William Lloyd uh, Garrison like looks like him. Like, the guy that played Frederick Douglass. I couldn't believe how yeah. similar they looked. So yeah, if you want like a really good picture of like all of this, I that helped me put this all into like a better timeline mm-hmm. perspective and everything super super good yes absolutely agree so he starts working um, as a compositor for the Newburyport Herald and then after his apprentice after his apprenticeship ends he became the sole owner editor and printer for the Newburyport Free Press so one of their um, regular contributors for the Newburyport Press was a poet and abolitionist, John Greenleaf Whittier, which was probably the first time, you know, again, he was, he always had this kind of religious upbringing that allowed him to see humanity in in other people. He was kind yeah. of brought up that way. But this was his first, I think, direct contact with somebody yeah. who who was a self-proclaimed abolitionist. Right, and I, and I think that what's interesting is that he chose not to go a political route, but he was very political in all of his writing. So when he, you know, took over the Newberry Free Press, he used that as like his political instrument. Like, I'm not going to be in politics and run for office of any kind, but I can get my message out there about my political opinions out there through this paper, which right. led all of these other abolitionists to come together, such as, you know, John Greenleaf Whittier writing for the paper as well and others you know, being welcomed in to share their thoughts and opinions about mm-hmm. political matters. It was interesting for me to read about how actually morally opposed he was to tying a lot of these issues to politics. And I think that the reason why is because for him, or at least that's what it seemed like to me, that for him, this was a strictly moral Yes, it was a human issue. Yeah, it was about human rights. And I think there is something to be said about like, this stuff shouldn't be political. People are people and they have certain inalienable rights (laughs) to be treated as 
people, period. Um, and it, it shouldn't have to be tied into um, the economy or any or anything else. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's there as shouldn't black be, and white as that. Right. There shouldn't be political motivation for giving people human rights. Absolutely. Is yeah. kind of what I what I think he believes. So yeah, but I but I love that that was his mode of going about things because not everybody has the ability or the mind to be a political leader, but once you find what you're good at and you're passionate about something, you can make a huge difference. And I think that was kind of his right. you know, introduction into that whole world of how he himself could actually make a difference with his beliefs. Right. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, you know, of kind of what you're saying is that like a lot of this stuff is inherently political, unfortunately, just yeah. because of the world that we live in. So despite the fact that he tried so hard to divorce himself and his ideals from politics, you know, big P in quotes politics. Right. Um, he was deeply political and deeply radical. And I don't think he set out to be those things <laughs> necessarily, you know. So in 1828, um, William arrives in Boston from Newburyport to be the editor of the National Philanthropist, the first American journal to promote legally mandated temperance. So Mm -hmm. he was not only a suffragist, uh, a suffragist and a abolitionist, but he was also a temperance advocate. And as we Mm -hmm. talked about in our last episode, um, there were a lot of reasons for this and Oftentimes, a lot of religious people um, who had these kind of like deeply moral fibers, yeah. like like William Lloyd Garrison, um, adhered to this temperance kind of belief. Yeah, I was actually thinking about temperance a little bit after we talked about it last week, and it. I understand that they almost kind of needed something to point to as a reason for why these men, I think, you know, generally speaking, were being abusive and I think it was easy to point to alcohol as being the problem for what was like causing trouble in the home is kind of what I'm thinking is how that started I I I agree you know and I I when I was listening back to do the edit on on last week's episode and um when I heard you say like it's it's kind of strange that they would point to drinking rather than the larger overall issue of abuse right um, which is the root of the issue that we need to get to and I absolutely agree you know of course like maybe we should tell men to stop being abusive period because there are for sure um sober men you know who are also abusive right um I think for them they needed a starting place Uh and it is true even to this day that oftentimes substance abuse of any kind can play a larger role in causing that those kinds of disruptions within the home right um it's just not the only reason it's not the only reason absolutely not but i was uh, reading um the five that that book i was telling you about about the victims of jack the ripper and talking about victorian england and it was a big thing there as well because when you find um very serious instances of poverty which in this time period it's dick it's dickensian right like it's like charles dickens levels of like horrific poverty poverty, um you will find increased substance abuse of course (laughs) and oftentimes when you find increased substance abuse there's increased domestic Violence. violence and and um and things like that. So I think that they just drew a line straight through that. And yeah. they were like, well, at least if we can mitigate this one problem, maybe. Yeah, it will. I mean, I, I'm starting to understand the thought process a bit more. But yeah, when you first hear about temperance, mm-hmm. you're kind of just like, well, why? You know what I mean? Like, it, 
today it's easy to look back on it and judge it. You know what I mean? It's like, well, because we tend to look at things like I understand where they're coming from. But yes, like on a on a, a larger level, it's like, OK, but we need to have the deeper conversation of like at this time, it was still legal to beat your wife for yeah. disobeying you. You know right. what I mean? Like maybe we should have that conversation <laughs> you know so I totally understand that yeah, as well definitely so I I did want to say just really quickly that so right now we're entering into when he is going into Boston the year is 1828 and in the late 1820s there were two million men women and children living in bondage in the United States mm. so I really want to highlight that because I th- have a feeling a lot of times that people look at slavery in the United States as being this very centralized thing to the South, first of all, which, yes, there was freedom. Um, it, it A lot of the states in the North did not have slavery. However, two million is a huge number, especially yeah. when you take into account population size. Uh-huh. We're not talking about cities like Los Angeles that are, you know, multi-million populations. Those didn't exist at this time. So two million people is a lot of people, and that's how many were living in bondage at the time when William Lord Garrison made his way to Boston. Yes. So when Garrison was around the age of 25, he had a meeting with a man named Benjamin Lundy, who was an anti-slavery editor of The Genius of Emancipation, which brought the cause of abolition to Garrison's attention even further. And Lundy offered him a job in the editor's position at The Genius in Vermont, and Garrison accepted. And this is when he introduced something called The Blacklist, which was a column devoted to printing short reports of slavery, kidnappings, whippings, and murders of black people. Uh, One of the big stories that he told was when he reported on a shipper named Francis Todd, who was from Garrison's hometown of Newburyport, who was involved in the domestic slave trade and reported that he had recently sent a ship from Baltimore to New Orleans with enslaved people on board. Now, when Francis Todd read this, he filed a suit for libel against Garrison, along with the state of Maryland, bringing criminal charges against him. And this is interesting. So they found him guilty and they ordered him to pay a $50 fine and the court costs, but Garrison refused to pay any fine and was sentenced to six months jail instead. He was released after seven weeks when the anti-slavery philanthropist Arthur Tappan paid his bill. And after that, Garrison got the fuck out of Maryland, is what I wrote. I love this man. Yeah, I but do love this man. It's almost like I think of him as being like a Sean King of that time that like posts the most recent like horrible things going on in the world that you need to know about, the videos, the the updates, like he is the person that is letting you know that it's in your face that this stuff is happening and you can't ignore it, you know, with this whole blacklist that he had started. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say it because I know that somebody's going to be in our mentions. About we know Sean, about that. Yes, <laughs> we know. We know. OK, like we know that Sean King has there's some things there that are that are problematic to do with Sean King. Um, however, He's also the first person I'm going to think of if I'm thinking about somebody that like constantly posts like Absolutely. that it, kind of stuff. He's the most well known for it. That makes sense to me. Absolutely. Thank you. So <laughs> I do want to say at this time, so around the age of 25, he's just a, a baby abolitionist at Blaby. this point. He's just brand spanking new to the anti-slavery movement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 
he's very excited to start figuring out like where to go and how to learn more. And so for a brief time, he becomes associated with the American Colonialization Society. And it's an organization um, that on the surface looked to be an abolitionist organization. So I can totally understand how he got involved with this um, organization. Because on a lot of abolitionists got involved Mm -hmm. with this organization because I think with a lack of understanding for how to treat human beings on the surface, you know, that there there could be, I can understand why some people wouldn't see this as being like well, a huge red flag. There were definitely members who encouraged granting freedom to enslaved people. So it depending on who invited you into the organization, you know, it seemed to promote freedom for black Americans. So yeah, I could totally see being involved and kind of he associated his name with this organization very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the the organization at its heart was really promoting the resettlement of freed blacks to um, a territory in Africa now known as Liberia um, on the west coast of Africa. And a lot of the reason that some of these members were advocating for that was not because they cared about the happiness or yeah. well-being of enslaved black people, but because there were there was a growing number of freed black people yeah. um, just kind of roaming the streets yeah and they were like we need to reduce the number of freed black people in this country um which would one serve to get them out of our hair Uh uh-huh they can go back to africa i'm sure that that's what they want and it would also help us to preserve the institution of slavery because at that time you know there was starting to become this movement of freed black people who were starting to advocate for the freedom of others yeah um and so he he did belong to this group for a small amount of time but he did leave the group fairly quickly after about a year and he he'd go on to say um that he rejected colonialization um and he did publicly apologize for his error and he spent the rest of his life kind of making up yeah and he even stated that he publicly said that he disproved of anyone who joined the society as well. So it's not even just like, I joined this and I'm sorry, but it's like, and I'm judging you if you join after everything that I've told you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I told you. Yeah. You can't go in blind now. You know. You, you know. know. I didn't know. But now you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he he completely rejected the American Colonization Society by 1830, made it and very well known that he did not want any part of that. <laughs> yeah, and another thing that I really liked about him was that he he listened to black people. Mm-hmm. So it was a fellow abolitionist named William J. Watkins, who was a black educator and anti-colonialist, who is the one who kind of like was like, hey... This isn't cool. Yeah, he like, educated him. E- yeah, educated him on on the idea that like no, like not all black people living in the United States want to go back to a country we've never lived in. Yeah. Like um, America is our home now. We just want to be treated like human beings. Exactly. You know what I mean? And Garrison instead of kind of being like you know what, I know best, yeah. was like, I'm going to listen to this person tell me what their lived experience is. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, myself included with with other, you know, with other groups could learn from that. Like, yeah. just maybe shut up and listen <laughs> for oh, a little I know. while. I, and it's, it's definitely the hardest thing to do, especially when you have a lot of very strong opinions. 
you know? And yeah. obviously he did. And, and he, you think you're helping. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. and he did have a great ability of being able to step back and get a great perspective. And mm-hmm. obviously just such a people person, like wanted to, like he has so many friends. Yeah. And he's an empath, clearly. Like, I really clearly. feel that. Like I, I think that like he really saw people's pain and like yeah. wanted to leave that or, or he had this, I think, Maybe I'm projecting, but it feels like he had <laughs> We this just great, love him that much. <laughs> I really do. And I do feel like he had this great way of putting himself in other people's shoes, whether that be, um, you know, the black American and their struggle that they were going through at the time or women. I really yeah. feel like he did kind of the same thing in the women's movement as well. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So this is around the time that probably the the biggest uh, thing that he is remembered by came into creation. He created his own weekly anti-slavery newspaper called The Liberator, originally with his friend Isaac Knapp. So that was when he returned to New England, was when he started that. And um, his friend William J. Watkins, who we just spoke about, would actually write a lot for The Liberator when Garrison was getting started. And the first issue reads almost like an apology from Garrison, as well as a promise. He apologizes for not always being part of the movement and for any times that he worked against it. And he promises, I, I know. <laughs> And he promises to write truthfully and boldly for the paper. He says, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. No, no. Tell a man whose house is on fire to give moderate alarm, but urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present. He ends the section by stating, The apathy of the people is enough to make every statue leap from its pedestal and to hasten the resurrection of the dead. I loved when he said, I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch and I will be heard. And I just loved that because it was so clear to me that he's like, I am not interested in compromising. Yeah. I'm not interested in taking things slowly. I'm not interested in your response to this. (laughs) Right, right. There there is no equivocation. Uh I'm not here to retreat even the smallest amount. Yeah. We're we're doing the damn thing. So buckle up. Doing the damn thing. And I loved that even though if you look at pictures of him, okay, He's bespectacled. He's got right? like the round, round glasses, skinny little guy. Yes, yes. And he looks like your typical, like, kind of stuffy old white dude. And and he looks... Very professor he, looking. If anyone could look deeply religious, he does look <laughs> deeply religious. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but he was profoundly radical. And I actually think that in a lot of ways, this deeply held faith that he had is part of what made him so radical. So I know that sometimes, especially given my past, it can sometimes come across as though we or I, I'll speak for myself. I was going to say me too. (laughs) (laughs) um, Are critical of faith or religion or Christianity or anything else. Um, And I don't mean to be. I I, I hate the the way it's used. It's what the person does with it. Right. I hate the way it's used oftentimes. Yeah. But this man is such a perfect example. He's what of, a Christian should be. Like, if you think about what yes. a Christian person is supposed to act like, it's not what we think of now as a knee-jerk reaction. It's what this man is acting like. Like he Jesus just, would have been radical. Exactly. Period. You know what I mean? And I feel like he's following in that example. You know, very... Mm-hmm. And everything is very 
clear to yeah. him because of those things. Yeah. You know. In 1832, he organized a group of his readers to form the New England Anti-Slavery Society. And this was really huge because this anti-slavery society would kind of spur on a lot of other anti-slavery societies within the area and throughout the nation from there as well. So I don't really know what was out there before him, but I do remember reading at one point that from him, you know, others were encouraged to start their own um, anti-slavery yeah. societies yeah. in their own cities and in states. It, it's almost as if he started a trend, which yeah, is, which yeah, is yeah. kind of, it's weird to think of it that way, but it, it is almost as if he started this kind of trend. And I think... A lot of it was because he was so radical. So he would have speaking engagements through The Liberator and other publications. He was Uh starting to be published in other publications. And something that made him different or set him apart from from other abolitionists of the day was that he advocated for immediate emancipation of all slaves, which a lot of other people were kind of like, no, we need to take things more gradually. Again, from a political standpoint, a lot of the nation's capital and our economy are tied up in slave labor. um, So we need to move more slowly. And he was like, no, this is a moral issue. He advocated for the immediate emancipation of slaves. It was very unpopular during the 1830s. Um, Even with Northerners who were against slavery, he also believed that enslaved people could also assimilate into American society, which a lot of people did not believe was possible. Right. That was the whole, that was one of the main purposes of sending them off. Liberia. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like there is no, because I, there was no understanding that, that they were anything like themselves you know what i mean i they, think that they, there was they just didn't what do we do with them you know right even you know again we talked last week about people who were involved in the abolition movement who believed that these people should not be enslaved but there was still this undercurrent even if they didn't say it out loud of still believing in white supremacy and still believing like okay they shouldn't be enslaved but we're still superior exactly. which by the way I, I do want to point out that that whole belief of like hey we don't want them to be enslaved but they shouldn't be here that's what Lincoln believed. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Um, but Garrison believed that these were Americans who yeah. were also entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, what's period. funny enough is that Garrison was not a fan of Lincoln during his first term Shocking. as president. And I, we, t- I mean, I talk about Lincoln briefly later in my notes with how he did end up um, helping him on his reelection and kind of coming around to Lincoln during the Emancipation Proclamation. He was kind of like, okay, you're starting to get it now. But he was not a fan of of Lincoln to begin with because he had this, you know, decolonization idea Mm -hmm. as well. Mindset. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, as a whole, his ideals weren't very popular, but the summer following the creation of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, they had dozens of affiliates and several thousand members. Mm -hmm. And something that was really amazing about the New England Anti-Slave Society is that women and men were able to join, were able to hold office and organize where it wasn't it wasn't segregated in any in any way. Anybody was welcome to join. Yes. Yeah. And in 1934. 1834. Oh, so <laughs> in, you're right. In 1834, three-fourths of the subscribers of the Liberator were black. Yeah. Which was huge. And, you know, everyone started, these people who were subscribing to um, 
this newspaper, they started paying, benefactors would start paying to have the newspaper distributed free of charge to state legislators, governors, mansions, uh, Congress, and even the White House. Because they were like, you need to start reading what's what's in here. It was publishing essays from women. They were being given opportunities that they weren't likely to find elsewhere. So by sending them to like heads of state and like leaders of the nation, it was really allowing them an opportunity to see a different perspective that they weren't going to get in any other newspaper across the country. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it, uh, when you think about it, too, it gave such an amazing platform to people that never would have had a platform otherwise, like all of these different women and black men and women that wanted to get involved where they wouldn't have an outlet anywhere else you know what I mean this was a place where anybody was welcome to come and share their beliefs and have it be read by thousands and thousands of people Mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing oh it's it's super amazing and I we're highlighting a lot of you know the good stuff but of course because he was so radical and so outspoken um in all these ways that were bound to absolutely piss people off yes it was pretty it was pretty dangerous for him so Seven months after The Liberator was published, Nat Turner's slave rebellion in Virginia happened. And I'm this so, kind sorry, of, I don't mean to interject, but I'm so mad that the that movie that movie has such a shitty director because so I, I saw it because I knew somebody that was in it. So I was like, I'm just gonna see it to Birth like support of a them. Yeah. It's such a good movie too. I know. I'm, just like, I'm sure it is. Fuck. I'm sure it is, and I didn't see it because the director's a rapist, exactly. and that sucks. Exactly. Um, but it it sucks that it's a great a story movie that came out with that um, with that story. And it's would, so been. it's it's pretty well done. There's moments in it where, like looking back, I can see where. Well, Gabrielle Union's in it. Gabrielle Union's in it. Yeah, I mean, it's it is good. It's real. I really really liked it. But anyways, I know it's, it's so hard. No, but it, it is. It's we talked about this at the time. We are we had the podcast when yeah. that was happening, and like it's very difficult because it's just like I remember someone telling me at the time I was like I'm not going to see that because I don't want to support a rapist. Mm-hmm. And she was a black woman, and she was like, you know, you don't have to support the preacher for him to still take you to church. And I was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't agree with that statement whatsoever. If so I don't trust I, the preacher, not, I'm not following him anywhere. So I have not seen it, but I it does suck because it is a great story. Yeah, that and that's be how people know the stories is by movies mm-hmm. being made about them. You Putting know what I mean? So that's why culture. it's frustrating that like and and Nat Turner is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. All right. But, Back to the but story. That, rebellion, <laughs> that rebellion happened seven months after the Liberator started. And so a lot of people in the South were saying that Garrison was partly to blame for, you know, kind of instigating, inciting, this uprising. Yeah, yeah. In- inciting these people to respond this way. Um, and it fueled outcry against him. A North Carolina grand jury indicted him for distributing incendiary material. And the Georgia legislator offered a $5,000 reward. Award, which is equivalent to one hundred twenty-eight thousand fifty dollars in in twenty nineteen. So that's yeah. a couple years ago. Um, for that's a his lot of capture. money. It's a lot of money over over a hundred thousand uh. dollars for his capture. They were like, "Go north, get this guy, bring oh, him back alive. here." 
Like Dead they were alive. brutal with this mm-hmm. man. But you know, things weren't all bad. In 1834, he met his lovely wife. Now, did you go into reading about Helen at all? Because I did right before we recorded. <laughs> I I didn't, but um judging and spoiler, we'll talk about it at the end, but judging by the way he responded to her death, I can only imagine. Oh my gosh, Keegan. It's like just are you ready? Because this I don't is know. So like my period's about to start and I fucking, might cry. <laughs> this is so fucking cute. Like really. So they got married on September 4th, 1834. But before that, they were introduced by mutual friends and they immediately hit it off because they both shared a belief in radical politics. So Helen was the daughter of a retired abolitionist merchant and her family would shelter enslaved people being hunted. So she was raised with abolitionist parents, very much raised with a radical mindset. Garrison says of meeting Helen, If it was not love at first sight on my part, it was something very like it. A magnetic (laughs) influence being exerted, which became irresistible on further acquaintance. I'm gonna, like, I'm literally gonna cry. I know. I I know I'm, like, hyper emotional (laughs) because my period is gonna start, like, tomorrow, but... I'm like, I'm just like, that's so sweet. They're so cute. And then at their wedding, they decided, both of them were like, we're not going to do a cake. We're going to have like a huge dinner. So they had what I read as being a bountiful dinner instead of serving a wedding cake. And they would go on to have... How progressive of them. I know, right? They're like, we're doing weddings our way. Um, They went on to have five sons and two daughters, but unfortunately, only two children, I believe, survived past childhood. I read that two of them passed away in childhood. Okay, maybe I just wrote it. I think I wrote it down wrong because that makes more sense. Who knows? It could be either thing. It's still (laughs) fucking horrible. It's sad. Yes. So one reader of The Liberator was a young and newly free Frederick Douglass. Yes. Um, And he said, and this is what he said of Garrison. He said, quote, no face and form ever impressed me with such sentiments of the hatred of slavery as did those of William Lloyd Garrison. And he also said, quote, his paper took a place in my heart second only to the Bible. I so know. So he was like fanboying oh, over yes. Frederick Douglass well, when he managed to make it well, you to mean one of his speeches. Over Garrison, right? You mean? Oh, what Fred- did I say? You said he was fangirling over Frederick Douglass. Yes, so yes, what Frederick, you said. Frederick Douglass, and this was seen in the docuseries that we were just talking about, The American Experience, Abolitionists. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. show how, you know, Frederick Douglass was freed from slavery and was just kind of like lost, not knowing where to go, where to turn, being in a new environment in the North and just not knowing where to go from there. Kind and of doing manual labor. That's He was just getting by kind of... He was very smart. He yeah. had taught himself how to read and write and all of that, but he was basically working as a laborer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so him finding, I think, a paper that spoke to his experience in his life was probably something that he'd never experienced before. And he became a huge, huge fan of this man that I feel like was finally putting words to paper to the feelings that he's had and that maybe wasn't even able to know how to put it out there. You know, I can imagine how unbelievably, how unbelievable it would be to read something like that. Yeah. How surreal that would be. 
to have had this experience because again you know again trigger warning if you're going to watch the show because that scene that Madigan talked about earlier is is really hard to watch but it's in there for you to have an understanding of how difficult a life it must have been and for Frederick Douglass for that to be his first memory of slavery yeah how how horrible that must be and on the other hand to have this very stark contrast of living however difficultly as a free American in the North and then reading this paper where you're seeing white people, you know, who see you, you see you and, and discuss issues that are relevant to you yeah, and how much, how important and special that must've been for him. Yeah. You know, so in 1841, he heard Garrison speak for the first time and at a meeting not long after that, Garrison invited Frederick Douglass to speak kind of unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like, hey, do you want to talk? And he was like, well, OK, sure. <laughs> so um, he asked him to speak. And after Frederick Douglass spoke, uh, you know, a lot of these people in the audience, a lot of these white people in the audience, though they were very well intentioned and they opposed slavery on moral grounds, they had never actually met a slave, seen a slave. Yeah. Or- heard somebody who had been enslaved talk about what their experience was like. Yes. And Garrison was so impressed with this and and also recognized that like this is actually going to be a useful tool in the abolition movement to have people actually see somebody who's experienced this horror firsthand. Um, He encouraged Frederick Douglass to become an anti-slavery lecturer. So without William Lloyd Garrison... We never would have gotten, likely... Frederick Douglass. The Frederick Douglass that we know today. It's crazy. And this, I think, was actually before Frederick Douglass. So I do want to jump in really quick uh, and mention that I've talked about the Grimke sisters a couple of times on this show. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, great book, The Invention of Wings by Sue Monk Kidd. Mm -hmm. I'm learning more about the Grimke sisters and their blind spots, but... Um, I do find them very, very fascinating, and they are writers as well, and Garrison would publish things written by the Grimke sisters, such as Letters to Catherine E. Beecher and Sarah's Letters on the Equality of the Sexes and Condition of a Woman, of Woman, and... This was kind of around the time that the quote-unquote woman question, you know, was starting to kind Mm -hmm. of be in the air. What do we do about women's rights and all of this kind of stuff? So in December of 1837, he announced that the Liberator would support, quote, the rights of women to their utmost extent. So that was kind of when he first acknowledged the fact that women would be involved in the movement and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, The Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society appointed female leadership to its position and hired Abby Kelly as the first of several female field agents. So he worked with a lot of women during this time and made it very, very well known that he wasn't only an abolitionist, but he wanted to take on anybody that was being mistreated. He wanted to help take on those problems. He was truly intersectional in that he believed in freedom for everyone. And again, I want to kind of highlight that this was not an easy path yeah. for this for this man to take. But no. he was unyielding and steadfast in his belief. Well, and it was, he was rare for women to be admitted into abolitionist circles. So the American mm-hmm. and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, who did not admit women, you know, were, were completely shutting off that whole 
that whole side of of the movement. There was right. there was none of that. He was a, right. a trailblazer in that way. Well, and from what I read, actually, it was it's because of him that that organization even formed in the first place. Yeah, because he believed that women should be allowed to participate in the anti slavery society. Um, he and so he opened up positions for women to be allowed to participate. And because of that, um, there were two brothers, Arthur and Lewis Tappan, Mm -hmm. who left. They disagreed with the stance that women should be allowed to participate. And so they founded the American and Foreign Uh, Anti-Slavery Society. They broke ranks because they were like unacceptable to us. exactly. That you're allowing women to participate, which is so wild to me. wild. That that is the thing that you're just like, actually, we oppose women being involved to such a degree that we are going to start our own society. Well, and it was in in 1837 that the first international convention for the anti-slavery cause was held in London by the British Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. And we talked about this last week as being Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's kind of um, introduction into the abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. So tensions between the sexes were already really high in the United States during this time, during the with the anti-slavery movement, like we said. But the tensions were felt equally across the pond as well. So Garrison arrived late at the convention in London, and in the sessions before he arrived, they had made an action which denied women of the American delegation any voice or representation on the floor of the convention. So when Garrison showed up and he was told of this, he refused to participate in the proceedings along with Charles Lennox Remond, Nathaniel P. Rogers, and William Adams. And they all went and sat in the spectator section where the women were allowed to sit. You know, it's so crazy to me that just like when we talked about last week, women having those blind spots yeah. to towards like enslaved people and their rights um, and the rights of women of color or people of color just in general, it is also very wild to me that people who are advocating for the equality of the enslaved or at least bare minimum, maybe not equality, but bare minimum freedom yes. for for enslaved individuals would be this rigid oh, about yeah. sex and gender. Like, it's it's so... It's almost like they have to draw the line somewhere. You know what I mean? It's like, well, we'll allow black men. Men. You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the the amendments as well. You know, how there, I feel like there was certain justifications and hierarchies in people's minds of what they felt was like acceptable and not. Um, Right. But I mean, Garrison Mm -hmm. and his friends that did this drew a huge spectacle. I mean, they're the only men sitting with women in this spectator section you know so they say that garrison dominated the convention without saying a word which i think is really cool a king can we say just a king so i i do want to touch on the fact that you know for him again he was very stubborn a lot of his beliefs were very black and white there was not a lot of gray there was not a lot of nuance and he believed wholeheartedly that the u.s constitution was a pro-slavery document yes um and many people within the society differed from this view and on july 4th 1854 he publicly burned a copy of the constitution condemning it as quote a 
covenant with death, an agreement with hell, referring to the compromise that had written slavery into the Constitution. Right. And in 1855, so the following year, Frederick Douglass um, actually pulled away from from Garrison Garrison because up until this point he had kind of agreed with him note for note on everything and if I have to say one potentially negative thing about Garrison it would be that because he was so stubborn because he believed that everything was so black and white and there were no shades of gray there was absolutely no room for difference of opinion really in in any aspect so he took it very hard when Frederick Douglass kind of broke with him oh so hard it was like a breakup Mm -hmm. the poor guy right yeah he he felt betrayed yeah but Frederick Douglass talks about you know growing and learning on his own you know he had Garrison as kind of his mentor and his guide in the documentary that we watched he discussed almost feeling like he was trading you know being enslaved by white masters to now traveling with another white man to give speeches for him and I can understand why you would feel that way I mean there was a point in time where they traveled and made and made 40 anti-union speeches. You know what I mean? Like, they traveled together and spent so much time mm-hmm. where I can understand why Frederick Douglass would maybe feel like he was still in the shadow and maybe following what Garrison believed rather than the things that he truly believed himself. So that's when yes. Frederick Douglass kind of started to talk to more mm-hmm. people with different backgrounds and things like that. Um, but He it, was significantly younger, too, yes. which I feel like always... Like, not only was this somebody he admired, which automatically puts you into a position where they have this kind of dominant position um, over you, but also he was significantly younger. And so I think it's easy it's to like think a father like, figure. yeah, this person has so much more experience in me. And so even if I have different thoughts or feelings, like those feelings must, or those thoughts must be wrong. I must not have learned. Right. Yet. Yeah. And with, and with someone like William Lloyd Garrison, who was so it's this, yeah. it's not ever this. And like, that's just the way it is. I can't, I, I imagine it was probably difficult yeah. for Frederick Douglass to establish any differing opinions. Yeah, and there was, you know, uh, he started talking, Frederick Douglass began speaking with a man named Garrett Smith who believed that the Constitution, like the opposite of what Garrison believes, that the Constitution could be interpreted as being anti-slavery. So we have kind of, again, they're both fighting for the same cause, but have two completely different ideas about the Constitution, which is a huge and, yes. disagreement, in which, my but, opinion. Which is huge, and yeah. I would say I, I lean Garrison on this argument. I mean, However, I read, I did, I read something because I was like, who was right? And I don't know where it is in my notes, but there was, it was like a historian that said, like, if we were going to really nitpick at it, we would side with Garrison more so now. But I, it I is agree. kind I, of I like, mean, you know... That is that is where I would stand as well. I mean, you're talking about a document that was written by slaveholders. Yeah, so exactly. I, I can't see it being an anti-slavery document. However, you know, the real issue is that again, there was no room for for compromise or, yeah. or compromise. And in and and if again, if I'm going to criticize Garrison at all in this, because I think we have been very, very complimentary up until <laughs> yes. this point. Um, it would be that he can't has a really difficult time He's seeing another person's point of view. And unfortunately, 
when this happened, he felt betrayed. He felt hurt. And so he immediately attacked Frederick Douglass through his paper. Douglass, not wanting to back down, responded. And the attacks basically intensified. They went back and forth for a while. And it really, really damaged their relationship for a long time. For a long time. Yeah, it Mm -hmm. it was for real like a breakup. It was yeah. there was a yeah. lot of love between this these men and I think that's why it made it so difficult on both ends because Frederick Douglass kind of left without saying anything to him. He just like if Garrison got sick, they left at a stop and Frederick was like deuces and he was gone so Garrison was very hurt and hurt. felt abandoned mm-hmm. and I think that Frederick Douglass the reason he did that was probably because of hurt too not wanting to say I'm leaving you know what I mean like it really well, does and seem- if he had I mean when dealing sometimes when dealing with someone like Garrison who is so persuasive yeah. and I imagine if he had said something to him you could get sucked back into that instead of like being like, no, I actually believe this other thing. Yeah, and or I don't even want just, you to give you the opportunity to tell me I don't think that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I did find in my notes there is a historian by the name of Aileen S. Creditor, 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 um, and in her study "Means and Ends in American Abolitionism," Garrison and his critics on strategy and tactics, eighteen thirty four through eighteen fifty. Why are study titles always so fucking long? Um, but in that, she states that quote Garrison's interpretation of the Constitution is now regarded as the correct one. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what I would have assumed as well. Yeah, but but at the you time, know, you don't know. This is literally like not that long after all of this has been. And Garrison, maybe don't function out of this position of just hurt. And instead, maybe take a look at it. And if you really think differently, this is your good friend. Like, maybe talk to him about why you disagree. Yeah. Because there is the potential for winning him back over to your side if you don't immediately lash out. Yeah. But yeah, I think that it was it was probably a lot of hurt coming out in him with that it, it just reminds me of a breakup yeah. then they're going to twitter to bash each other you know what i mean it's like i agree they're oh, doing 100%. it because of the love and because you know what i mean it, it's the hurt for not being together why do i ship frederick Douglass and william lloyd garrison no I don't me know. too like bffs BF for real for l so when the civil war broke out in 1861 garrison continued to criticize the u.s constitution in the liberator and like i said in the beginning of the episode he was not a fan of abe lincoln because Abe Lincoln wanted to preserve the Union, which, again, is the opposite of what Garrison wanted. But that was his... Abe Lincoln's priority with the Civil War was to preserve the Union over abolition of slavery being his objective. And that, to Garrison, right. rubbed him I mean, the wrong way. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, we've talked... You and I have talked about doing an episode on Abe Lincoln yeah. because uh, for as much as good as he did and for as much as I do think he came around later in his life to being an, a, a true kind of like anti-slavery yeah. advocate. It just took him the time more of, time to get there, I think. And Yeah, and I don't think we talk about that enough because he actually said many times, you know, there's many famous quotes from Abe Lincoln saying, if I could preserve the union and preserve slavery, I would do it. Yeah. Like, he, he says that. You know, he would be taunted during this about, you know, loving black people and, you know, all of this stuff. And so to kind of go on the defense, he would be like, no, I don't. No, I don't. You know, and there's a lot of quotes like that mm-hmm. where it's like, no, I don't want to yeah. give them rights. I just don't want them to be slaves. You know, there's all of this 
like very mm-hmm. well documented history of Abe Lincoln like not being the greatest guy in the world. So I appreciate the fact that William Lloyd Garrison was able to kind of see like, no, this isn't I'm not going to follow you just because you partially believe in what I want to believe. He was still very, very, again, stubborn in his convictions. Yes, you might be, again, yeah, and it's a double-edged sword, his stubbornness. But it's like, he was basically saying to Abraham Lincoln, like, I see that you're doing the thing I want you to do, but you don't actually believe in the things that I believe. Like, we're not the same. Yeah, I think it's kind of like how a lot of progressives... Well, not lately because he's been fucking up already. But like, I think it's how a lot of aggress- progressives have kind of looked at J- Joe Biden. Yeah. Where we're like, look, we're on the same team because you're kind of like you're not Trump. Yeah. And like you're you're more doing the shit that I need you to do. But we're not the same. No. We don't believe the same shit like at all. So like never forget that. Yeah, you know I mean, that's I mean? a great comparison, I would have to say. I think that makes a lot of <laughs> sense, actually, comparing Abe Lincoln to someone like yes. a Biden. It makes a lot of sense because yes, yes. it was when Abe Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation that Garrison began to support Lincoln and actually helped him get reelected in 1864 when many abolitionists at the time did not. So again, Garrison well, was kind of see, in the unpopular yes, party of you that. You can see it's the best option for right now it's getting us closer to where we want to go even if we are not on the same page entirely yeah you know? and i and, think and that I, writing the emancipation proclamation probably did show a, a bit of growth and some understanding and, and if not personal growth within abe lincoln himself at least the proof of growth in politics, you know, that's going to be mm-hmm. changed. So I, I can understand mm-hmm. why he would start to kind of be like, we need to keep this person in office absolutely, to make this happen. So I'm going to make sure he gets reelected. Absolutely. Yeah. So I do want to backtrack just ever so slightly do. Um, to talk about the events of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go into this. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode. Again, John Brown was a super radical revolutionary abolitionist who, um, you know, not going to sugarcoat it, straight up murdered some white people uh, because they murdered some black people and he was ready to start a war. I'm not mad at it. Do I I I condone murder? No. Look, okay, (laughs) it might be a little bit of a gray area. However, (laughs) we are talking about Slave owners. Slave owners who were wreaking havoc across Kansas. Can we also talk about that? Like, they were like, it was like blood red Kansas. Like, they were, it was a nightmare. It's the same thing why we love Nat Turner. Like, do we condone murder and slaughter? No. Do we fucking love a good story where somebody comes in and takes revenge? Sometimes people have to burn down a target. Like, you know, can like, I put that on a shirt? That's our first march. <laughs> sometimes you have to burn down a target. You know, oh my um, God. but so in the events following that, um, uh, the liberator followed Brown's trial and eventual execution. And though Garrison strongly disagreed with Brown's violent tactics, he still respected him as a fellow abolitionist. And he had Brown's last speech in court printed as a broadside and had it available in the liberator office oh. for anybody who wanted to read it. So he was like, look, man, Respect. I'm a pacifist. This guy was not a pacifist, but at the end of the day, the heart of what we wanted to get done was the same, and this man is being executed 
for, for that. our cause. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's just respect. And that's what more people need down the line. We can have different opinions on things. When it as comes to our heart, what I was going to say with, you know? with nitpicky things like that, with big opinions about, you know, obviously race, sexuality, human rights, things like that. No, we cannot waver. But when it comes to those little things, just showing respect for other people's work, I think is always um, something to admire. Yes. Love it. Where do you want to move on so, to now? Um, I was going after. So Me too. I was going to say. Uh, after the United States abolished slavery, uh, Garrison announced in May of 1865 that he would resign the presidency of the American Anti-Slavery Society yes. and offered a resolution declaring victory in the struggle against slavery and uh, dissolving the society. So, so for me, this is where oh, my problematic thing came up, because okay. to me, I thought this was such an abrupt end. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait. Slavery is abolished and now mm-hmm. you're done? Like, to well, me, I, that was kind of... Because the way he says it, too, he when he resigned, he says his, quote, vocation as an abolitionist, thank God, has ended. And I'm like, wait, no, I, we need you. Where are you going? I wrote in my notes... This is what I wrote in bold. Okay. I said... I think the man was just tired, personally. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was tired. And I think he was like, look. And he said he was done. Like, he wasn't the president of these organizations anymore and things like that. But he didn't really stop. But when reading this, I was like, wait, what the fuck, man? Like... (laughs) Right. So it, it prompted debate because he was like, look, the anti-slavery and I, I OK, to play devil's advocate. I hate that line. <laughs> it's been co-opted by white dudes on 4chan. But um, the American Anti-Slavery Society, they had abolished slavery. Yeah. So they were like, all right. In his mind, he's like, we're done here. Yeah. But there was a longtime friend, Wendell Phillips, um, who was part of that society, who said that the mission was not completed until black Southerners gained full political and civil equality, which, as we know, um, wouldn't happen for over 100 years. Yeah. Did you know um, that Garrison but- actually named one of his kids Wendell Phillips Garrison after him? Stop it. How? Stop it. Fucking cute is that? Like his full name, Wendell Phillips Garrison. I was like, I love it. Stop. Okay, sorry. I had to also when you that have really seven kids, you can totally do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so Garrison maintained that while civil equality was important, that the task of the anti slavery society was at an end yeah. because there was no slavery anymore. Well, yeah. Um, but Wendell Phillips and- did take over as head of the mm-hmm. AAS for about five more years as they continued. They continued the AAS until the ratification of the 15th Amendment. And Garrison didn't challenge that either. Yeah. Like, like once it became clear that like they were like, nah. So he was like, I want to dissolve this. Um, and that resolution was defeated 118 to 48. So 118 people were like, we are not ready to end the anti-slavery society. Yeah. And he could have challenged that and appealed it. And instead he was like, you know what? That's fine. Yeah. I'm going to step away. Wendell can take over. And to me, what that says to me, and maybe I'm giving him a lot of um, leeway because I like him. Um, But to me, I think he was just exhausted. I think he was. I think he was tired. I think that when you're the the head of these organizations and the head of this paper and the head, like he was the guy for everything. I can imagine him being absolutely exhausted. But I also feel like this was a time for him to start. You know, maybe not being boots to the ground as much, but he really started Mm -hmm. to learn 
you know, widen his knowledge about the cause for black and women's rights and mm-hmm. suffrage and things like that. So it wasn't, you know, when I read that, it's like my job here is done. But really, during that time later in life, it it was maybe not he wasn't in the head of everything and he wasn't the face of everything, but he had so many friends that were in the suffrage movement that were still well, in the anti-slavery movement that I feel like it, he was still yes. around. You yes, know? in his defense, though, he did go on to continue working in in human rights. Yeah. So in, in 1870, he became the associate editor of the women's suffrage newspaper, The Women's Journal, yeah. along with Mary Livermore, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Lucy Stone, and Henry B. Blackwell. Yeah, so we talked and about Lucy served, Stone last week yes, a little bit as we well, because she was kind mm-hmm. of on the other side of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yes. She, mm-hmm. So yes. Lucy Stone was part of Garrison Society and things like that. So she, I would love to learn mm-hmm. more about her, because I had no oh, me never too heard about her me me neither and she seems more in line with example (laughs) yes she's an example of like for all those people who say well you know elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony had to do this thing it's like no they didn't because there were women at the time who were like we can advocate for abolition and advocate advocate for suffrage at the same time Well, and those women kind of pushed lucy stone out too because lucy stone Mm -hmm. when they merged those two organizations together was actually on the board of that as well but it seems like she was kind of pushed out which Mm -hmm. is really unfortunate yeah yeah it was um, so he served as the editor for the Women's Journal, and then he also served as president of both the uh, American Women's Suffrage Association, the AWSA, and the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association. And he was also a major figure in New England's women's suffrage campaigns uh, throughout the 1870s. And in 1873, after almost 20 years Stop. of feuding... Oh. He hailed his long estrangement with Frederick Douglass and also Wendell Phillips, who he had fallen out with over that um, issue whenever he decided to leave the AAS. So there was this event going on for the 100th mm -hmm. anniversary of the Boston Tea Party and they got together again. I know it was a rally that was actually organized by Lucy Stone and this other woman named Abby Kelly uh-huh. Foster. Um, and it was sponsored by the American Women's Suffrage Association. And they were all there together. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just settled their differences, set all their stuff aside and became friends again. I know. I know. And they would remain friends throughout their lives. Um, in 1874, he was actually approached to run for office when Senator Charles Sumner passed away. And Republicans, again, the Democrats of the time, really wanted Garrison to be the successor. But Garrison still continued to decline on the grounds of his moral opposition to taking office. Mm. I love I know, it. Um, right? A man with convictions. So many convictions. So later on in his life, he would also spend more and more time at home with his family, with his wife, with his kids and things like that. He And he sounds like he was actually a very active father in every way that he could be. He would write long letters to his children when he was away. And in 1876, I believe, his beautiful wife, Helen got a severe cold, which worsened into pneumonia, and she died. And I also want to point out that Helen had suffered a stroke on December 30th, 1863. So this was 13 years later, and she had been in... After the stroke, and she had been increasingly confined to the house. Yeah. And when Garrison was not on the road, I would 
assume that this also played a part in why he wanted to oh i can um, imagine stay home with his wife stay home as much as possible um he tended to her when she was ill when he was home yeah um so it it was it was super tragic for him so they had a, a very quiet kind of intimate funeral in the garrison home and he was so overcome with grief that he was confined to his bedroom with a fever and severe bronchitis yeah. and even though the funeral was held in his home he was unable to join the service because he was so ill I know. and um Wendell Phillips actually gave the eulogy and a lot of his old abolitionist friends joined him in his bedroom to offer for their private condolences. I know. Um, and he was so heartbroken. He was so heartbroken. And what's interesting that, is that after his death, he began attending mm-hmm. spiritualist circles in hopes mm-hmm. of contacting his yes. wife in another life, oh. Keegan. Again. Oh, my God. Again. We need my heart. We need a million of this man. We need clothes of this my man. My heart, just like it's it's crushed. Uh, I mean, I also know that spiritualism at this time was having a resurgence, yeah. and it was it was kind of in popular culture. But but yeah, I mean, he he went so far as to travel to Europe um, to meet with spiritualists to try and contact his stop. wife because. He just loved her so much. Oh, my God. Stop. Why? I know. I was reading about this earlier, and I, I texted you because I was just like, I'm, like, gonna cry. I'm not okay. <laughs> like, I'm not okay. Uh, yeah. So, unfortunately, only a few years later, William Lloyd Garrison's health started to suffer as well. He was suffering from kidney disease, so he moved to New York to live with his daughter, Fanny, and her family. When his condition worsened, the next month, all of his kids came to his side. They sang their favorite hymns to him while he beat time with his hands and feet because he was too weak to sing along. (laughs) And on May 24th, Dorothy, my dog's birthday, 1879, Garrison lost consciousness and died just before midnight. It's so sad. I know. So he was... (laughs) He was buried in Forest Hills Cemetery in uh, Boston's Jamaica Plain neighborhood on May 28, 1879. Um, At the public memorial service, there were eulogies given by Theodore Dwight Weld and Wendell Wendell Phillips. There were eight abolitionist friends who were both black and white who served as his pallbearers and and flags were flown at half staff across all of Boston. Frederick Douglass was then employed as a United States Marshal, and he spoke in memory of Garrison at a memorial service in a church in Washington, D.C., saying, quote, It was the glory of this man that he could stand alone with the truth and calmly await the result. (laughs) And this was actually another quote that I read from that as well that I found shortly before I started the episode. So this one that he also said in that speech says, let us guard his memory as a precious inheritance. Let us teach our children the story of his life. Let us try to imitate his virtues and endeavor as he did to leave the world freer, nobler, and better than we found it. Okay. I know. I'm like, if you listen to my voice when I said found it, I started choking up. I want someone, I want people to love me as much as, like, I, 
I want people to show up to my funeral and say these things about me. That's my goal in life, to be liked enough to have people say we, this stuff about me when I'm just, dead. We, we got to live our lives like that. <laughs> like, you know, because he just lived his life so uncompromisingly. Yes. It was like there was no, there's nothing else anyone could say about yeah. him because it was just like, this is the truth. Yeah. Is that like he is this kind of man. He lived his life in this kind of way. And there is nothing else to say. Yeah. He loved his wife. He loved his family. And he fought for freedom. Yes. That's his thing. And it didn't stop after he died. His children would go on to do amazing things. So his son and namesake, William Lloyd Garrison Jr., went on to be an advocate of the singles of the single tax, free trade, women's suffrage, and the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act. His second son, Wendell Phillips Garrison, like I mentioned earlier, <laughs> was the literary editor of The Nation for 41 years. His son, Oswald Garrison Villard, would become a prominent journalist and founding member of the NAACP. Isn't that wild? It's amazing. (laughs) And I loved, you know, when I was reading, I read this one line that was just saying, for the entire generation of people that grew up in the years that led to the Civil War, William Lloyd Garrison was the voice of abolitionism. And I'm like, that is the truth. And like, again, in conclusion, I know it seems odd that we are talking about a man during Women's History Month, but without this man... I really feel like a lot of these people, the Susan B. Anthony's, the Elizabeth Cady Stanton's, the, the Frederick Douglass's, the Grimke sisters, um, all these people both in the early, early civil rights and abolition movements and the women's rights movements, um, maybe they still would have found their way, but it was William Lloyd Garrison who really opened the door and gave them a voice yeah. and a platform al- to speak. Yeah, and it almost feels like he laid the groundwork of like the basis of the beliefs almost. You know what I mean? Like I feel like so much of what we've learned from the women in feminist history, it almost feels like so much of what he's discussed is almost like their inspiration coming off of that. You know, he almost laid the groundwork for more to be built off of it. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult. It's impossible to say what it would have looked like without him, right? right? Like, you know, and it's it's quite possible that the Grimke sisters, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they still would have done great things. Lucy Stone, you know, like it, it's it's possible, of course, that, that that all would have happened anyway. But it's not. What we have to work with is our true history, yes. and what our true history says is that William Lloyd Garrison was an uncompromising advocate for human rights for all people and that his beliefs opened the door Mm -hmm. and allowed a platform and opportunity for a lot of the people who we now look at as icons exactly to to have a have a place he in our history it's like he allowed them to to learn right. and grow and then teach yeah. us. You know what I mean? It is such I'm, an I'm interesting careful thing. not to give him all the credit. I'm not trying and know, I'm like, not trying to make no, it no, sound you're not. like that. Okay, good. Because I just You're think, not, but I just want to be clear. Yeah. We're not giving William Lloyd Garrison the credit for any of these people no. or, you know, what they stood for, but we are saying like credit where it's due in that you this is a perfect example when we say you have to use your privilege your innate born privilege because yes. a lot of people nowadays would say a lot of people who were born into William Lloyd Garrison circumstances right like poor abandoned impoverished they would not say he's would privileged say, yeah they would say what white privilege i don't have white privilege but the fact is 
At this time, he was a white man, which allowed him to have access to a certain amount, a level of education, even if he was poor, and allowed him employment and allowed him to be able to own his own business and his own paper. And with those privileges, because they were privileges, allowed him to give platform and voice to those who didn't have it. That's what it means. He was was a, a welcoming, open door, and I wish I could give him a hug. Me too. I want to hug you, Garrison. I love you. Oh my god! <laughs> did, I did not think I was going to love him this much. I me was neither. super into him me last neither. week when I started reading about it, but I did not. I'm very glad that you feel the same way because I've had a crush on Garrison for the whole week. It's been great. It's been very sweet. Very yes. very sweet. Um, and again, I cannot highly recommend it enough. Go on YouTube or PBS and watch that American Experience docuseries. I'm going to go finish it now, even though we finished the episodes because they're so good. So good. I'll go put the, I'll, I will put the first one in our show notes. So if you open Apple Podcasts and uh, um, go into the details of our show notes, um, I'll put the first one in there if you want to go and find that awesome. one. And then you can find part two and three. And then if you really want to watch the rest of it, get the PBS app yeah. I'm, or I'm sure it can be found on their website so or something. Good. And then go watch all the Ken Burns documentaries. That's all Max watches is Ken Burns. <laughs> like 10 hour long Ken Burns documentary series. It's crazy. They're good. They're very good. Um, oh boy. Well, that was our second week of Women's History Month. We hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed it. We love to hear your opinions and your thoughts of what we should be covering, what you want to hear about in the news, what you want to hear us talk about on our full-length episodes. So go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. And you can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go to the group page and chat with the other listeners. We're starting to get a little bit more action in there. So hop on in and start some great conversation. You can also go to our Facebook business page and leave us a review if you haven't done so already. And then you can go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. We appreciate it so, so, so much when you do. Oh, and we have a Twitter that we sometimes use, at Yamf Podcast. Why? A-N-F Podcast. I could have just skipped it, but I was like... Good catch. Yeah, I mean, we never get on there, so why even say exactly. it at this point? But, but it's it's like a, it's a bit now. Like, we can't <laughs> not do it, you know? All right, that's all we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye! Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Ho, 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 ho! Your search is at an <laughs> end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy, or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. 
Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.